Today's scripture comes from Galatians 1, 6 to 10. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be the servant of God. You may be seated. As you're seated, let me pray. Uh, Father, as we look at this text today and as we come before you now in prayer, we do so asking that you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to believe, and that we would both see and hear and believe the love that you have for us in Christ, that we would trust you in your gospel, that we would trust you in the exclusivity of Christ for salvation, that we would trust you in the authority of your word, that we would trust you, that we would behold you with glory, and uh, that you would Just stir us, Lord, to serve you in greater faithfulness and in a greater way. Help us, we pray, because we need it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Week two of our study of Galatians, and you can see in the booklets that you have, for those of you that have them, uh, that week two is verses six through ten of chapter one, but it's also week three. Next week, we're going to come back and look at this text uh, in a little bit more detail, and what we'll do is actually look at some of the modern cultural false teachings that we can maybe see in our world, and you'll see how this text leads us into that topic as we, uh, as we dive back into this text again next Sunday. Um, last week, uh, during the week, we were discussing as a preaching team, that we meet every, every week and we t- talk about the text and we talk about things that we think are applicable to the text, and so we're meeting as a group and sitting down and just having a good banter about the text, and Fred Eaton, who leads the church in Kitsilano, he talks about this documentary that he's been watching on uh, the, the multi-billion dollar industry of counterfeit goods. And we've all seen counterfeit Gucci, we've all seen counterfeit Louis Vuitton, but what the documentary was actually aiming at was this more insidious counterfeit good, the counterfeiting of cancer drugs, where people who were making fake cancer drugs that had no active ingredient in it, and so they were essentially just nothing. People were taking them thinking that they were taking the proper you know, pharmacological steps to seeing their cancer put into remission or healed or whatever the case may be, and it was actually just counterfeit stuff. The Associated Press actually published an article on this back in April, so if you want to find out more information about it, you can do a quick online search to find it, but just imagine this for a moment, and and I know that this actually isn't hard to imagine because most of you have had this experience, not just as an idea, but imagine somebody you love comes to you and says, I've been diagnosed with cancer. Almost every one of us, I would say, have been in the situation where somebody close to us or ourselves have been diagnosed with cancer. Now imagine that you get into the best oncologist in the city. You are getting the top-end treatment. We would all say, praise God, that's an answer to prayer. We're getting great treatment for this. Doctor puts together a protocol that includes taking cancer drugs that are developed specifically to combat the particular cancer that you or your loved one have. Imagine that you start getting better. Imagine that you start healing. And you start feeling better. 
Everyone's celebrating. This is good. It seems to be working. The treatment is working. This might not be the end of life. This might not be the situation that it could be. This is actually a better thing than that. And we, we talk about that. And then your prescription runs out. And so you go to the pharmacy and you go and you get your prescription refilled. And this time, though it looks the same, though it's packaged the same, though it's labeled the same, though it's from the same brand name, it has no active ingredient in it. And the benefits of the drugs that you've been on start to just dissipate and disappear. Inexplicably, you start to get sicker and sicker, and there's no reason for it. Everything seemed like it was working in the cancer treatment protocol you were in, but you now have been taking counterfeit drugs, and the counterfeit drugs are not effective to heal. It's branded the same. It's labeled the same. It's sold as the same. It looks the same, but it's a total counterfeit of the real thing. This is the situation Paul is in with the Galatians. Like we have seen in Acts chapter 13 and 14, Paul travels into the Roman province of Galatia. He travels into the south part, into the four cities that we looked at last week, and he makes disciples. He plants churches. He preaches the gospel. He then travels back through those same cities in south Galatia, and he installs elders in the churches. And then it happens. People arrive after his departure. They arrive on the heels of his worthwhile efforts to preach the gospel in South Galatia. They arrive after he departs, and they come in using the same language. On the surface, it looks like the same thing. They even use the name of Jesus. But the teaching's just a little different. Yeah, 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 Paul didn't quite have it nailed when he said this. Yeah, yeah, Paul wasn't quite right. It's actually Jesus and this. And they begin adding to the work of the gospel. They seem to present the same Jesus, but there's a difference. They've arrived after Paul has left these young Christians, and instead of the authentic gospel that Paul had delivered to them, they are peddling a counterfeit gospel. So instead of freedom in the gospel, they, as false teachers, are leading people back into bondage. Instead of a healing message of the gospel and hope in Jesus, these troublemakers are distorting the gospel of grace and they have caused these new Galatian believers to turn away from God. Now very quickly this morning, I want us to notice three things in the text. Paul's astonishment, Paul's use of the word anathema, which I'll explain, and where Paul finds his approval. Astonishment, anathema, and approval. And I'm just going to go ahead right now and say I'm not normally the preacher that gives you three words that start with the same letter, but they're right in the text. Okay, they're just coming right out of the text. Earlier I said if I was that preacher, I'd tell you this is a triple-A sermon. <laughs> but I'm not that preacher, so I would never make that point. Astonishment, anathema, and approval. Look at verse 6 and 7. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul here is astonished at how fast they have lost their way. He is bewildered. He is confounded. He is dumbfounded. He is flabbergasted. He is perplexed and flummoxed and mystified. He is astonished, and it's not in the good way of being astonished. 
So the letter was likely written only a year or two after he had first visited these places and first preached the gospel in these cities and first planted these churches and then first visited them and installed elders in the different churches. It was probably only a year or two. So the tone of it comes with this urgency. Paul didn't have iMessage. Paul didn't have FaceTime. Paul didn't have Gmail. It took a while for Paul to find out where he was of what was actually happening in the southern part of the province of Galatia in the churches that he planted. It took a while to find out. And so when he finds out, it seems by the tone of his letter that he writes with urgency. If you look at all of other letters that Paul wrote that we have in the New Testament, they all start out and they all have kind of a greeting, but then there's like something worthy of praise. There's a thanksgiving that he gives for them or he praises the church for the things that they're doing or there's even just something like a prayer. None of that here. He gets straight to the point. He gets straight into it. And what he says is, how did this happen already? He says these false teachers have come in troubled and distorted. This is the work of a false teacher to trouble and distort. So he just gets into it right away. Next week, we're going to take time and we're going to look at what kind of distortion this was in the churches of Galatia. We're going to look at some modern cultural distortions of the gospel. But look at verse 6 again. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Paul says they have deserted him who called, which means they're actually deserting God. And so you say, well, why the severity? Why the tone? Why the urgency? Is there anything more urgent than a group of people who have come to know Jesus, who have now heard a distorted gospel that has caused them to turn away from God? Is there anything more urgent? The severity of his tone, I think, is applicable here. The word deserting itself, it's actually an interesting word. It's used in other places in this time of history as well. It's used of soldiers who had deserted their armies on the battlefield. Men who were out fighting with their other comrades and who turned and ran, deserted. It's actually used of soldiers who flipped to the other side. The word is actually used in ancient history, in first century history, of politicians who flipped on their party or flipped on their political and philosophical positions. So they would say one thing and then flip and do another. I mean, that we don't understand that. We've, we've never seen that. But that happened in the first century. It had, the, it had the idea of being a turncoat. It's not a positive word. But there's actually a little bit more hope here in verse 6 than maybe would appear on a first reading. It says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. And then what does it say? And are turning to a different gospel. And are turning to a different gospel. This is happening in real time. It's happening in such a way that it can still be repented of. It can still be corrected. It can still be fixed. So Paul's writing to them in the strongest of terms, and he's seeking to correct the false teaching troublemakers who were there trying to come in and correct those who have flipped and to bring them back on side, back with the one who called them in Christ. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And verse 7 says, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
There is no other gospel. This is the unpopular position of Orthodox Christianity. We've believed this for 2,000 years. We believe in the exclusivity of Christ for salvation. We believe when Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life and that none come to the Father but by me, we believe that he meant that none come to the Father but by him. There is no other gospel. So there's a problem when somebody else comes in and preaches a different gospel. Again, Paul's tone matches the severity of the situation. Verse 8 says, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So Paul is first astonished at what is happening, and then he drops this heavy on them. He drops the heavy on any who would preach a deviated gospel, a distorted gospel, a perverted gospel. But the heavy here, notice this, is actually universal. He's not just saying, yeah, yeah, there's some people I don't like. Let them be accursed. What he's saying is, is if anyone comes and preaches a different gospel than the one that we delivered to you, he says, including us. I'm including an angel from heaven. Let them be accursed. So Christ City, you need to know this. The elders who were just installed here, standing with the other elders of Christ City, if you hear us preaching a different gospel, you need to come to us. There's a severity to this. We stand in a long line of 2,000 years of Christian history where we have seen the faithful gospel passed from generation to generation to generation. When Paul says, let him be accursed, that is a Greek word, anathema. It's actually found in the English dictionary too. This ancient Greek word, anathema, has such force and is so poignant and powerful that we've just brought it right into our own dictionary. We use it as it is. So when Paul says, let him be accursed, in verses 8 and 9, he's saying, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, what he's saying is anathema. Let them be accursed. What one commentator said, you could read that as, damn them. To hell with them. That's not potty mouth cursing. He means that literally. That is how strong this text is. The word anathema is not something that gets tossed around. And we're going to look at this again in a deeper way next Sunday. But just like Paul's day in the first century, the the greatest threat to the church of Jesus here in Vancouver in the 21st century is counterfeit preachers with a counterfeit gospel. We need to know what the authentic thing is so we can smell the counterfeit a mile away. Paul's job with the Galatians, the job of the elders on our team, my job as a preacher to be ready to refute this kind of false teaching in the strongest of terms. And if it's us who deliver to you a different gospel, anathema on us. And that's what Paul's saying. Speaking in other places on the qualifications of elders, Paul elsewhere says, he says it in in Titus 1.9, he says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. It's both. It's good, sound teaching and the correcting of false teaching. 
The problem here, what we need to note, is that this is not an isolated incident in the first century Galatian province. This is not isolated to that part of the world, and that is not, this is not isolated to that point in history. Um, this is what Paul told the Ephesian elders a little bit later on in his ministry. In Acts 20, you already heard verse 28 read, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Now, I think Paul had some prophetic insight as to what was going to happen in the Ephesian church, and I think he's speaking to the heart of the Ephesian elders so that they're ready when this happens, when this comes. But, but you know what else I think? And I, I, this week studying it, I think Paul's experience in Galatia prepared him to know that this is probably going to happen in the other churches too. His meeting with the Ephesian elders happens way after his meeting with, in his letter to the Galatians. I think he learned along the way that after his departure, fierce wolves would come in. Paul seeking to be the best shepherd he can be. In doing so and in mentoring his young disciple Timothy, he says in 1 Timothy 1.3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, he tells him to remain in Ephesus so that you might charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. He's like, look, we got the gospel from Jesus. We delivered it to them. If anybody comes in and contradicts it, you shut them down. That is the work of a good shepherd. Paul's seeking to be the best shepherd that he can to this little flock in Galatia. And so he writes them the letter because good shepherds don't feed the wolves. They feed the sheep. And when the wolves come in, they address it. And if they really were sheep who have just lost their way, then they will come to repentance and they'll be restored. But if they were never sheep and they were only wolves, then they need to be chased off. Douglas Wilson wisely said, Kindness to wolves is hostility to sheep. Martin Luther said, with the wolves, you cannot be too severe. With the weak sheep, you cannot be too gentle. So Paul's severity in this letter and the way that he begins this letter is entirely justified. So Paul's astonished at what's happened. He declares anathema on these troublemakers in Galatia. And he reminds them of where he finds his approval. Look at verse 10. For, I, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. If I were, not, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So I ask you, whose approval are you living for? Because being a servant of Christ means that you've set aside all other means, all other measures that you would take to try and please God, earn his approval. Being a servant of Christ acknowledges that you are already approved and accepted by God and lives in light of that truth. This is such a vital thing for us to understand. Christians... Do not work for God's approval. We work from a place of receiving and having received God's approval. We don't work for God's approval. We work from God's approval. Just like when we do good works. 
We don't do good works to merit the salvation that is offered to us in Christ. We don't do it so that we deserve that, but because we've received that by grace, therefore we do good works. They're not to earn a righteousness or a right standing before God, but they are because we have a right standing before God, therefore we do. So we don't work for God's approval, we work from God's approval. And that's what Paul's saying to them. And if I'm working from God's approval in my life, I know that I'm loved, I know that I'm accepted in spite of all of my junk, I know that I'm approved purely on the basis of my repentant faith in and through all that Jesus has accomplished on my behalf. And if I know that, then I am free. I am free to do what God's called me to do apart from any fear of man. If I don't know that I'm loved and accepted by God, I'm going to live a tortured existence. Trying to be good enough. Trying to merit his approval. And I'm going to suffer. I'm going to suffer under the hardship and the burden of trying to bear that on my own. And because I probably will never feel like I've received it vertically, I will look horizontally to other people for their approval in my life, and that'll tell me that I'm good enough. You can't ultimately please anyone by compromising the truth of the gospel. If you compromise the truth of the gospel, you're not serving God. But if you compromise the truth of the gospel, you're really not serving one another either. Paul says, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Being a servant of Christ means setting aside all of the temporal comfort that's there that that, that comes when you feel accepted by all people. And I, I hate to tell you this, but the message of Christianity is not accepted by all people. Therefore, you won't be approved by all people. But you need to know that if you're a follower of Jesus, your approval that comes from God, you've been approved by him through the work of Christ, that you don't therefore need the approval of anybody else. Our call is to faithfulness, to fidelity, to the gospel. And that's what Paul's on about here. If you're compromising the gospel to try and please man, what what do you think they'll say one day when they stand before the throne of Almighty God? And if we've sold them a bill of distorted gospel goods, if we've sold them some sort of compromised faith, what do you think people will respond with one day? They stand before Almighty God and they're going to stand there. They're going to go, why didn't they tell me? Did they not love me enough to warn me of what I was doing? Short-term accommodation of false teaching will always lead to long-term destruction. It is not kind to allow people to turn from God and to turn from the gospel of Jesus that they've received. There's no kindness and no love in that. The love is coming alongside with an arm around the shoulder that says we need to correct something here. The the love is actually when the troublemaking false teacher, if they are a troublemaking false teacher, is chased off like a wolf for the sake of the flock. Short-term accommodation of false teaching will lead to long-term destruction. Uh, My mom was diagnosed with cancer 12 or 13 years ago, and I can't imagine in that meeting that that was easy for the doctor to sit her down and tell her that she had cancer. She's in the clear now, which is amazing. I'm so thankful for that. But what if that doctor on that particular day thought, you know what, I don't want to upset this poor woman. Yeah, she has a tumor, 
Yeah, it's cancerous. I just don't want to be the bearer of bad news again. Sits down with my mom and says, you know what? Everything's fine. Big smile on his face. Her oncologist would not have done that. Do you know why he would not have done that? Because it's called malpractice. How terrible would it be? How horrific would it be to know somebody's diagnosis and know that there's a treatment plan and just tell them, don't worry about it. It's actually fine. If we seek the approval of man and we live with fear of man, we will not tell people the truth and we'll be just resolved to just say everything's fine all the time. It's like the prophets in the Old Testament where they say, peace, peace, but there actually was no peace. We don't want to be bearers of the message of peace that is not actually a message of peace. We want to be bearers of the truth of the gospel. The good news that God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son to die in our place as an atoning sacrifice that we might be reconciled to God. We have good news. If we have an eternal mindset, it's okay to tell people that there's only one way. It's okay for Paul's tone to be the way that it is in this text. If we don't do it, it's spiritual malpractice. So whose approval are you living for? There's no other gospel. There's no other gospel but the one that we've received in the scriptures, the one that we have preached 1 Corinthians 15, Paul summarizes it and says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And it's in the power of this good news that we stand. Would you stand and respond with me today? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.